You know by now that the dogs in my house wear Paco collars, and the newest addition is Stig's tan leather collar with brass fittings and turquoise stones. It seriously looks like the bay we bought our house on, and his smooth coat and long neck show it off perfectly. We picked it out in person at Paco's booth, and the staff helped us to be sure we got the exact fit and style that was right for him. I catch myself mesmerized by this collar when I walk him. How crazy is that? So get over to PacoCollars.com and grab a collar you'll be obsessed with. And don't forget to use the promo code COGDOG for free shipping. We've got a puppy. Puppy Elementary is my puppy training subscription service, and it's all about our new puppy, Watson. It's just $45 for six months of Watson's development and education, and you'll have indefinite access to the materials, so sign up anytime. Just go to www.thecognitivecanine.com and click the Puppy Elementary tab at the top of the page to register. Each week, you'll have access to multiple training videos and blogs, as well as constant access to the Puppy Elementary Facebook group, where you can talk about your progress with other students. Watson won't stay little for long, so join now. You all know how excited I am about Worked Up Camp, and I hope you're excited too. Working spots are full, but... We've still got plenty of room for auditors. The camp is in Port Orchard, Washington, and it is September 28th through September 30th. It's going to be a ton of fun, lots of learning, really great community, and I can't wait. So hop over on the both the Cog Dog Radio and the Cognitive Canine Facebook pages have information on camp, and you can always join the camp event page. Just search for Worked Up Camp, and you'll find it, and you can get all the details there as well. So I hope to see you at camp. Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of The Cognitive Canine, and this is Cog Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it. I'm here with Dr. Leslie Ide. Uh, we're talking about some upcoming classes. So she and I together are teaching jumping gymnastics on Fenzy Dog Sports Academy. And that's all about fitness and conditioning and training for jumping skills. And it's primarily focused on agility dogs, but we've certainly had dogs that need to jump in plenty of other sports come through the class successfully. And then Leslie's got um, another class through Camp Thor Canine. Is it just Camp Thor Canine? Yeah. Yeah, Camp Thor Canine, which is um, an, an online school based in Wales. Um, Leslie, you want to talk about that a little bit? It's Weaving Wizards. Yeah, Weaving Wizards. And just so you know, um, don't try and phonetically spell it if no. you're searching for the website. Well, it's... we'll give you all that later. Okay. Um, so, Weaving Wizards is basically a similar setup to Jumping Gymnastics, um, except Sarah's not involved. Um, but it's, it's say it again, what you said for Jumping Gymnastics. It Fitness focuses, and conditioning as well as training yeah. for Weaves. weaving. Weave yeah. poles. Yeah. Weaving poles. Weaving poles. So, we Slums put for all my slum. European friends. That's right. 
I kind of like that. Except slalom is too hard for me to say. I can't say it. And it's so funny when I watch the videos and they're like, slalom, they, slalom. They're like, and slalom. And the dog, and I'm like, I cannot yeah. spit that word out. I can barely spit any words out. <laughs> slalom? Oh, yeah. Insanity. All right. So... Leslie and I both put shout-outs on our social media platforms this week um, to get some questions from you all about these two classes. So we're going to – Leslie's going to answer them now. (laughs) Leslie's going to answer them because they were specifically conditioning type of questions. Yeah, it was really more focused on just fitness conditioning than, like, any specifics about the the classes. But – right. That's what you bring to both of these classes that's so unique that other people can't necessarily bring. And I will also say, like, generally, out of all the questions we got, I feel like 99% of them would be answered in one of the class, in either one of the classes. Um, I think so, too, after just reading through them. But let's answer them and um, see what everybody thinks. So... A lot of these, first of all, you guys, these are paraphrased, too, because most of your questions were repeated. Lots of people ask the same stuff, so these are kind of paraphrased. So, first one, how often do condition, how often should we do conditioning exercises, specifically on fit pause equipment or a climb? And so I wanted, um, uh, what I really wanted to do with this question was kind of define things, um, because to me, conditioning happens every day. Um, you know, when you take your dog for a walk, when they run around, um, when you do agility training, all of that is a form of conditioning. Um, it just potentially is a different aspect of conditioning. So when you specify fit, pause, and climb, to me, that's more equivalent to strength training. And I basically follow the same rule of thumb as is generally accepted in people, which is that, you know, you want to do strength training every other day. You want to have a day of rest in between. Or if you're going to kind of split the body. So, you know, you hear people talking about leg day. Um, that's really so that you could do like legs one day, then arms the next, and then legs the next. So you're giving legs a day of rest, um, but you're still working out and doing the strength training. So... Generally speaking, I follow that type of pattern and try and do strength training that way. It's a little bit more difficult um, in dogs to to separate the body in half. Um, so, you know, it all depends a little bit on your schedule and what you can do um, to, to fit all of it in. Awesome. So... Um... I know with Iggy getting ready for Sport, we do something every day and we do what you've said to just divide the body up. And then we always have a day of rest after competing. Yeah. And I think, so that's another really important consideration. It's not necessarily that you're going to keep this schedule throughout the whole year. You know, I'm really interested in looking at, you know, potentially like a year long training plan and having um seasons and really defining an end of season goal and that's like the big thing you you want to be absolutely best for um and then based on that your schedule may change throughout the year so you know if you're in your you know technically your off season where maybe you're not competing quite as much but you're trying to get in shape 
you'd want to do more conditioning during that time. And actually, as you are coming closer and closer to your big event, you're going to back off how much uh, conditioning you're going to do. You're going to actually taper for the big event so that the dog is nice and rested and ready to do their best. And I think you talked about that at length on Bad Dog Agility, didn't you? Yeah, so I definitely um, got into it with Bad Dog Agility podcast. Um, it's it's kind of a different way. You know, again, I, I really focus on the the dog as an athlete and trying to treat them that way. And I think sometimes because we think of it more as training and more of behavioral kind of stuff, what we tend to do is when something big or important is coming up, we actually train more and that's really the opposite of what we should be doing we should be giving the dog a little bit of break and just you know keep them moving keep them fit but don't um, push them into overtraining because actually overtraining is where you're more likely to get an injury so next question I think a lot of people are wondering this right now what are the what's the best exercise to do to strengthen the stifle or the shoulder or the knee and the shoulder to prevent tears I think everybody's really worried about that um, especially now with social media and so every time someone's dog gets hurt everyone knows about it um I think the best exercise is to take the classes because really, you can't even answer that question, right? It's I mean, probably, there's not like it's, it's one exercise, specific, right? Yeah, there's not one exercise that it's like, oh, if you just do this exercise, you'll prevent an injury or you'll prevent a tear. Or if you just don't do this one thing, you'll prevent it from happening. Um, it, so much is based on the type of exercises you do, but also how you're doing them and really paying attention to your dog's fatigue level. Um, And I think that's what's important. There's not like this magic exercise and this magic number of doing it so many times that's going to make it good. It's really about reading your dog and knowing when you should stop um, and how, and, and scheduling. I mean, there's so much to go into it. There's and, just way And too that's much. why I do think the classes are really beneficial to help you start to understand the uniqueness of your dog and how to create a program for them. And also, I think I've done this on every single podcast I've been on, but, you know, give a plug out to, um, you know, canine fitness trainers, people who have gone through the programs to learn how to basically be a personal trainer um, for your dog. You know, it's, it's the same. You can go to the gym and just do some things and be like, okay, cool, I worked out. But you're going to get a lot more out of it if you actually work with a personal trainer. Was that a personal statement you were making towards me? No. All right, next question. <laughs> so um, I feel like this one might have the same answer. What What's the best exercises to increase core strength? Yeah, so... Um, we this, talk about core constantly yeah. with jumping gymnastics because they cannot jump if their core is not yeah. strong. Yeah, I mean, they can't do a lot of things if their core is not strong. They can't decelerate to come into a two-on-two-off. They can't decelerate to get into the weave pulls. They can't, um, yeah, they, they have a hard time maintaining their body position while they're jumping. Um, so many things depend on core strength. And 
really, again, best exercise, it depends on the dog. It depends on what their level of core strength is currently. You know, if they're really weak, you have to start with the basics. Um, you know, just standing on something that's slightly unstable. Um, and then you always want to be progressing to make them stronger. So, it's really hard to say like there's a best exercise for it. Um, I tend to focus, you know, one of my like easy rules of thumb is that anytime you incorporate some instability equipment, no matter if it's for standing on or just like the front end or the back end or whatever you're doing with it, if there's an instability element, you're trying to target the core. And the instability equipment is all these inflatable Inflatables, but even like well wobble as, boards yeah. and rocker boards, you know, those aren't stable. Um, couch cushions. I know we often have in jumping gymnastics multiple people that, you know, don't have a lot of equipment at home. And part of what we can do, especially is if you're a gold student, is, you know, I say, what do you have around the house? And we can brainstorm and figure out how to make it work. And so I think that goes on. There were some other questions about like, what can you do if you don't have equipment? And really, you know, look around the house and see what you have. I mean, that's how I started. I just found things I could use to um, teach some of these exercises. So somebody asked, um, are there exercises we can do to teach our dogs to pick up the correct lead or take the right lead before jumping? That's an interesting question. I thought it was a really interesting question, and I thought it was more of a of a Sarah question. Because um, generally the first thing that pops to my head is better handling. So they know where sure. they're going you after have to they tell land the dog, right. so that they have the information and I will to switch s- the lead. And I will say in jumping, we talk about what parts of jumping are affected by exercise and what parts are affected by handling and training. And this is one that is affected by handling for sure. Um, and But also, if you're doing it right and the dog is consistently still utilizing the wrong lead, I would worry about an injury, wouldn't Correct. you? Correct. Yeah. So definitely if they won't switch leads... And you feel like everything is, you're doing everything right. That's potentially an early indicator of a problem. Um, The other thing is, I I would say, exercise-wise, probably what what you're thinking about, or what I would think about is body awareness. Like making sure the dog also realizes they have four legs and that they can change leads. Um... You know, there are some there are some setups that can be utilized specifically to to get lead changes. And I, I do have a specific exercise that I work on in the weaving class. Um, but there are also other other ones that can be done to just help the dog get comfortable with um, changing the lead appropriately as they navigate a a, a course. Of course is the wrong word, but a challenge. Yeah. So moving on, um, is there a way to teach dogs how to fall appropriately or, or if not, how to avoid falls? I know a lot of human athletes 
go through fall training, be, like learning how to fall appropriately like skiers because they're going to fall sometimes and you want to avoid an injury. So that was an interesting question to me. What do you think? I don't know. I don't either. Okay. I, I, I mean, the one thing I thought, like, that first came to my mind was, like, falling off the dog walk. And so I that's what I was thinking, too. Specifically, I work more on, I do, I teach them, I guess, to avoid the fall by I teach choosing them to bail, them to ba- yeah. choosing to bail rather than trying to hold on and then falling. 100% reinforce choosing to jump off when they lose balance on the dog walk. And I, that's the only time I feel like they fall. Yeah. I think the only other thing would be that they slip sometimes if the surface is not great. And again, that all comes back to body awareness and making sure that the body can take something like that. Yeah. But the only thing that really came to mind for me there was the dog walk and you and I both um, just reinforce bailing if they start to get uncomfortable so that they don't fall. Because I think the dogs that fall are the dogs that try hard to hang on if they're slipping. Yeah. Um, I want them to just collect themselves and jump off yeah. if they're slipping. I think, yeah. I mean, there's always the weird fluke, but I don't know that, like, I don't know how you would teach it. Like, how you would, like, tell them. If you feel like this is happening. I can't think of a force. Stop, a drop, and roll. Way to or, teach Yeah. Because I know they teach, like, they teach movie horses to fall because, like, battle scenes and things mm-hmm. like that. But it's all very forceful. But it's, and it's cued. Like, it's for the camera, not, like, if you feel yourself losing balance, this is how you should fall. Correct. It's on cue. Yeah. So. So it's completely different. Yeah. All right. So someone says, how do we feel about jump grids? <laughs> and then if we like them, how, how often do we use them? I mean, I'm pretty sure we don't like, like thir- jump grids. <laughs> like a third. You guys, like, probably a third of the material in jumping gymnastics is grids. Yeah. So we both are... We both like them, but we both have um, done a lot of thought on maybe how to improve upon what we learned from other people um, for our own personal situations. A lot of jumping gymnastics is based on having jumping problems in our own personal dogs and working them out ourselves. Yeah. And and as for the question of how often, again, it kind of goes in your goal through the class is to turn the jump grids into um, like a plyometric exercise. So so what we're looking at is not necessarily using them. How, what do I want to say? Using them to as like a training tool. A training tool, but we more do in the like, beginning use them as a training tool. But once the dog understands the grid, it's no longer teaching them. Right. It's now it now can be incorporated as a yes as a conditioning exercise and we go through that in jumping gymnastics. Yeah, and so again with frequency, you know, I would probably do them more when I'm not in full competition mode, when I'm trying to build up that foundation fitness for the year, um, and probably less often during competition season. So. A few people, and I hear this question actually kind of a lot. Um, How early should you worry about or try to change a puppy's conformation slash anatomy, meaning how they sit, what their paw angles might be, whether or not they've got a level top line? Should we try to alter those things in puppies? Can we alter those things? Talk about that a little bit. So the first thing I wanted to do was like kind of clarify. Um, I think this is, is really two different questions. So... 
confirmation slash anatomy can't be changed through exercise. Like you're not. Also, those are different things. And I think people talk about them as the same thing all the time. Confirmation, technically, the definition of that would be how well the dog does or does not conform to its standard. That's why it's yeah. conformation. Okay. Um, so it just has to do with the standard. I think right. people use it as a way to say how the dog's put together. Yeah. Um, and then it's anatomy. You can't change how what they're born with. Right. So, like, yeah, I mean, we can't change their bone or their joint. We can change the muscle. So that's definitely something, you know... That we can work on doing exercises to try and build more muscle along the back, which can make them look like they have a different top line, but sure. they're not actually, you're well, not you think actually of, like, changing the before and after pictures anatomy. of, like, right. a normal person to a bodybuilder. Like, right. They look like different people, but they still have the same basic skeletal yeah. structure. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing. and But then the other thing, like how they sit. So to me, that's more, that's a movement pattern. And that I do focus on, you know, I want correct movement, especially when I'm doing exercises. So, um, you know, as a puppy, and, and we... I'm going to do another plug. Went through this with Puppy Elementary a little bit already. Mm -hmm. Um, So I talk about how, you know, I want the puppy to sit on cue. And I I don't necessarily care how they sit. Like, if I just need them to, like, sit in front of the door as, like, a life skill, I'm not going to fuss about it. But if I'm doing it as an exercise, I do want a specific movement. I don't want to repetitively do a sloppy sit because then I'm just reinforcing bad movement patterns and it's just going to be harder to break when they're older. Um, So, and I do that throughout their entire life. You know, I definitely, my older dogs don't sit in this perfect square, beautiful sit every single time. Um, if they're just sitting of their own accord, you know, I kind of think of it like me, like I'll just go chill on the couch and be all sloppy. Slump down, and, yeah. So, and it doesn't really matter. But if I'm like sitting at my desk typing, I try and think about my posture yeah. and I try and think about my movement and posture, especially when I'm working out because I don't want bad form or posture um, while I'm working out because that then I'm not strengthening the right way. And just... I kind of grew up in the competitive obedience world and we learned that, you know, you always want a nice tight square sit. And so you shouldn't actually teach a puppy to sit until they're physically capable of giving it that you that kind of sit. And I'm not saying you shouldn't teach them to sit. I mean, if you're an obedience person, then maybe. But like I'm coming like I had an instructor who had Labradors who were very floppy as babies and she taught them to sit on a tight square little platform um so that they would learn to kind of tuck in and she didn't do any sits on the ground before then and i'm not saying that that would be necessary but like in a baby a lot of the times they're just floppier and you just shouldn't worry that much about it i think yeah i think it depends on your i mean your how comfortable you feel in your training skills and absolutely um because i feel totally comfortable 
getting re- the sit you want reinforcing later on. a sloppy sit when I just need them to sit. Me too. And and then being able to actually get precise square sits when sure. um, that's what I'm actually looking for. Um, so I I have no problem. You know, like I said, having a sloppy sit at the beginning. Um, but. So what's some strengthening we can do for the A-frame specifically? Um, so I kind of talked about this a little bit with the core strength. I mean, especially if you're doing any kind of stopped contact, you need to have core strength for them to be able to hold their body together and, um, be able to do that two on two off behavior. Um, general body awareness. I mean, I wouldn't say, like, I think if you just do good conditioning, they're going going to be ready for the A-frame. I wouldn't, like, nothing nothing really specific, specific. They, but they I mean, it's I can a even, piece of equipment that they need to have good body awareness yeah. good core strength i mean i can for. see actually a lot of what we do in jumping gymnastics besides the, the actual jump i think almost the landing stuff, but because we do some landing specific yeah. exercises and descending down that steep um frame i think yeah, the I, landing I exercises think could, probably apply. Yeah, I think you could take most of the exercises, the conditioning exercises we do for in jumping gymnastics, and say this is exactly the same. I think so. For an A frame, I mean, it's a very similar. It's like a drawn out jump instead of just. Like yeah, a, it like has the five phases yeah. of jumping, but it's over an A frame. Yeah. If you want to know about the five phases of jumping, jumping gymnastics. That's your place. So I'm assuming this is um, somebody kind of asking about injuries. They're saying, is there any way to catch problems early? Yeah. So it was specifically like, I think, you know, they talked about massage and stretching and um, and saying, you know, I want to try and catch a problem before they start knocking bars or refusing to weave or something like that. And I you know, reading it, I was like, well, you're already doing the right stuff by doing the massage and stretching. Um, Basically, catching problems early is knowing your dog and knowing that how they move and how they feel when you do the massage and stretch. And suddenly if they're, you know, not letting you stretch something out the way they used to, that can be an early issue. Um, the other thing that I think is really important with this is that you're not going to get through any sport without some minor issues. Like, I think it's extremely unrealistic to look at a dog's, and we'll specifically talk about agility, but a dog's agility career and expect there to never be any soreness or even lameness, um, going to happen yeah we tweak things I mean look at professional athletes they tweak things all the time and it's kind of part of it is knowing um you know the recovery process so if they're um have an issue for a couple days but then seem fine they're probably fine um it's probably not an indication that something major happened um you know 
sometimes we just push too hard. Um, sometimes we, um, over fatigue the muscles and it takes longer for them to recover than the traditional kind of like 36 hours. So I think, um, I think that's really important to, to know because, um, we're so worried about injury now that, you know, they, they take, the dog takes one misstep and, you know, Everybody suddenly panics. you want like an entire diagnostic workup and you're doing MRIs and scoping and, you know, all they did was break a toenail and it's, it's something. When you say, cause I know a lot of competitors don't have this. A really good relationship with a good veterinarian, even if you don't have a sports medicine veterinarian in your area, your dog needs to be seen by a veterinarian twice a year, yeah. even if nothing's wrong with them. I think that it's actually shocking to me how many competitors, when I actually ask them, just don't even go to the vet on the right. regular basis because a lot of people in the agility world are into minimal vaccinations. They're into you know, things like that. And the way the veterinary medicine is kind of set up is we've got these vaccines kind of spaced out and happening so that you actually do come in for the vet to see your dog. Your dog should actually be seen by somebody who you trust to give them a thorough physical twice a year. Yeah. I mean, don't you think? I I just think that. And then if that person just had their hands on your dog, a month ago, right. and now they're lame, they've got a better baseline exactly. to go off of when you go in because yeah. they know your dog's body. Exactly. The best thing you can do is, yeah, if establish that relationship and let let the vet see them when they are healthy and feel them and feel what they can do so that they can help you identify whether something is actually a problem. Um you know, a lot of times, yeah, there can be these minor little things that you're seeing at home, but we can't necessarily replicate them in the clinic. Um, and then it's hard to, to know, is it truly a big problem or is it something just like a minor tweak that we just need to give them time and then specifically work on a conditioning plan to address the weakness that caused the the tweak so somebody asked and i think people a lot of people have this question what if you're doing agility several days a week how important is fitness training if you're already doing agility multiple days a week is your dog fit enough from doing just agility probably not um so again i'm going to relate this to human athletics and while in professional sports they definitely you know train their sport on a regular basis daily twice daily whatever it is um they're also pretty much across the board doing some kind of fitness training at the same time and again you're going to focus more and be harder on your fitness training um, during, like, the early season um, or off-season when you're not competing as much. But um, you definitely need to have some kind of fitness routine 
um, mixed in with your agility training schedule? I think that's a good answer. Um, another thing people worry about kind of often, big dog. Do we want one one foot on either side or two feet? Um, we're talking about footwork and weaving. Yeah. Do we want them to plant two front feet or one front? Like, what do we want them to do? Do we do? I do Single address step, this. Single double step. Yeah. This um, in Weaving Wizard. Um, specifically, my general rule of thumb is to just go with what the dog's comfortable with. I think if you run into more problems trying to change it, if they're naturally a hopper, let them be a hopper. If you try and switch them to a single step, um, I think that could create problems. Um, I have seen high-level dogs do it both ways and be very successful. I will say that Iggy, always been a hopper, always been very fast, very competitive. I had plenty of people tell me early in her career a million different ways that I could quote unquote fix, fix the her hopping. weaves. Yeah. Meanwhile, she's plenty fast. Yeah. It's not a problem. Yeah. Um, for her, and she has great body awareness. I don't think, you know, I think that allowing them to choose is smarter for them just from a anatomical standpoint. They know what feels right. Mm-hmm. So, um, ooh, let's talk about, um, we had a really specific question from our friend Joy who does fly ball and she was wondering, can we keep both sides of our dogs strong? And this has nothing to do with the classes, but it's a really interesting <laughs> question. Um, can we keep both sides of the dog strong, even though the fly ball box turn is always to one side? Yeah. So I really like this question because it goes um, back to... Hi, Joy. Leslie loved this question. That's <laughs> it goes, why it's here. It goes back to my foundation. Um, because I actually did do swimmer's turns for... I don't know, 20 years of my life. Um, and <clears throat> it does happen. You have one side that you're comfortable turning to. Um, and I, you know, we figured it out when I was very young swimmer, like maybe five years old. And I turned that way until I was 24 years old, you know, until I stopped swimming basically competitively. Um, and there was never really an imbalance, but I think the big thing is that you don't build that imbalance in your strength training. So, you know, when I was in the gym, um, or doing any kind of other exercises, everything was done equally left and right. Um, so to maintain that, um, consistency between left and right, I will say, the only other thing that was kind of interesting is that occasionally we would do drills um, where specifically um, we would practice turning your non-comfortable direction. They would make you do that in the water. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think to me that was more about bringing the mental aspect back into it because when you've done That's something. conscious movement versus right, the subconscious When you've done something set. for 15 years the same way. Really tough. You stop thinking about it. Yep. And so, you know, then when you need to make a slight adjustment 
to make that turn be faster, it can be very difficult to make those those small adjustments in a movement that you're very, um, you know, it's become muscle memory. Um, and so you have this pattern developed and even no matter how much you're thinking of it, like you might be like, I'm so, this is so exaggerated. And the coach is like, yeah, you moved it a millimeter. Like you changed just the barely anything, but that's cause it's just that motor pattern. is so set in that direction. And so we would actually practice it Um, the opposite direction so that we could really kind of feel the difference and bring more mental um, thought process to it of like the building the pattern. And there have been studies um, in human physical therapy that have actually showed that doing exercises, doing the movement on your non-injured side helps promote the movement on the injured side. Oh, that's so interesting. So so I do think there is potential, um, you know, piece of this that could, you know, say you you should practice box turns occasionally to their non- um, comfortable yeah. side, but I wouldn't do it very not often. A, and not even necessarily on a flyball box. You could do it on right. a rocker board propped against the wall. Right. We actually do that. That's as, actually... Isn't that in Weaving in Wizards? Weaving Wizards yeah. as an exercise. So in, don't you think also that kind of goes back to the previous question, which is make sure that the activity isn't the primary conditioning your dog is getting. Right. Right? Like make sure that flyball is not the primary exercise your yeah. dog is getting. Um Really interesting. So thanks, Joy, for that. Um, exercises for a large breed, like, say, a golden retriever, was used in this example, if you don't have the cash or the space for the equipment. So um, pretty much for me, a golden retriever is going to get the same exercises any dog is, like my Border Collies or Aussies. I think we um, kind of think of, as gold, of a golden as maybe a medium-sized breed. Yeah. I mean, they're usually pretty... Um, you know, easily, uh, I guess to me, I, I start to worry more when I get the giant braid dogs, you know, when I got great Danes, um, the, Irish wolf yeah, the new fee is that like yeah. you get them up on equipment and you have like, a lot of Bernie's mountain dog and clients. falling off the equipment is potentially a, a big problem. risk, um, versus <laughs> goldens tend to be a little bit more body aware, more athletic. Uh, yeah. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily treat them any different than, like I like I said, you know, more of the giant breeds. I might treat them a little different. Um, so again, you know, look around your house. We talked about this earlier. You can definitely come up with stuff around the house that can imitate equipment. Um, you know, you don't need a lot of space for equipment. Um, if you watch our videos, you'll see a lot of mine take place either in between the coffee table and the TV yep. in the living room yep. or in the mud room. Um, I'm, and someone else asked this later on, so hopefully we'll get it with this, this answer. I'm minimalist. I'm not one of those that I throw a bunch of equipment together and like have this big project exercise. Um, I tend to use one or two pieces, um, at a time. Um, Easy setup is really important yeah. when you're a very busy professional. Yeah. And so, Leslie gets that, you guys. So the classes, 
are structured that way. The conditioning pieces, I honestly, the training pieces that involve weave poles or jumps right. are going to involve way That's more space all the setup. Yeah, all the space requirements for the classes come from when we're actually doing the jumps or um, the weave pole stuff. It's not from the fitness Absolutely. equipment conditioning stuff um it's you know I again I'm I, I I make fun of myself for being a lazy trainer and part of that laziness is that I don't want to be switching out equipment a lot I want to have one simple easy setup and be able to do all my exercises for that um that day on that setup um so that being said you know I definitely um when I started out I didn't have all the equipment um so very much in in your position of of you know making things work and what i will say is that um this is another question that comes up if you had one piece of equipment what would it be um and my my answer always before was two fit bones um again for me it's because my dog's being border collie australian shepherd size um i wanted to be able to get them all four on instability. So I needed two fit bones to do that. I do think there's something to be said of having two separate pieces of equipment rather than just one. Um, hopefully some of you will, will kind of get what I'm talking about with that. Um, but it also depends a little bit on your dog's size and your dog's body awareness. You know, I start very early at young age um, building body awareness, so it's very easy to transition them onto fit bones. If I had a dog that maybe is a little more clumsy, um, you know, and again, like those giant breed um, dogs, I maybe wouldn't start with a fit bone. I'd start with something with a little bigger area and maybe a little bit more stable, like um, I use yoga um those yoga, yoga pads Yo yoga oh, the mat um you know those oh the cushy pads cushy pads yeah, yeah, yeah a lot as a beginner thing um but also couch cushions um so air mattresses i mean in these classes you're very flexible and yeah. you are very much able to work with what people have. Exactly. You and, always are. And what you also have to think of, just real quick, that what the equipment brings into it, what the instability equipment brings into it, is more incorporation of the core. You don't have to have instability to work on strength. The instability just helps engage the core more. Okay. What do you think about underwater treadmill work for healthy sport dogs? I think it's a perfectly good thing to do if you have access to it. Um, most people can't do it, you know, three or four times a week. And so if you're depending on it just once a week as your conditioning, that's not, not doing enough. much for you. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, I have no problem. Now, it is good to have someone who understands how to work the underwater treadmill and play around with the settings um, so that you're getting an appropriate workout for your dog. You know, just putting a if really... It's a clinic that primarily sees geriatric dogs yeah. or maybe TPLO recoveries right. so, they're not necessarily going to understand what to do for a healthy sport yeah. dog in yeah. the treadmill like I said just putting them in there and putting the water up as high as it'll go and having them just walk for a really fit dog probably not going to be much of a challenge remember muscles have to be challenged to get stronger I feel like that was again that was pointed at me <laughs> 
Just kidding. All right. So what about tricks for conditioning and flexibility that don't require equipment? So I think we went over that a little bit about you can use other stuff. Um, my general rule of thumb, I always start with body awareness, which isn't going to use that instability equipment because I want the dog to to know how to move their body. And I'm looking at how they're moving it, making sure it's done with proper movement patterns and proper form. And all of that is done off of equipment before I ever put them right. on equipment. Literally right now, um, Felix does some core work on instability equipment. But a big part of what we do is he's on a narrow platform um, that's just like a two-inch platform that's just wide enough for him to stand on, just wide and long enough for him to stand on. And just doing sit, stand, and down on that platform yeah. to get these really nice, clean movements. And that's a workout for him. Yeah. I mean, that's hard. Yeah. I make sure all the dogs I start with have my you know, fit form building blocks that they can check off every single building block before I would ever take it to equipment. Um, yep. or, you and know, that's a seminar you teach, right? Um, it's a seminar. It's just my basic it's, foundation. It's program, your foundations, but program. you can present it as yeah. a seminar. That uh, was just a, just in case people listen to this and are interested, <laughs> that's a seminar you do. Um, okay. So what do you think about canine massage? I love it. Me too. I, I mean, massage I humans. Yeah, has definitely shown to play a big role. It's been role a big thing in recovery for human yeah. athletes. Um, so we know we don't know. I mean, I'm really interested in the science behind massage. We don't know a lot about why it works. What we do know is that it very much is very successful at reducing inflammation. Yeah. Um, it's a vital part of my life, and I've been doing agility for like 17 years. And my first agility dog got regular massages. Um, it was something that I did even from the beginning and saw the results from. And we're really lucky to have a couple of good friends who are really good canine massage therapists. So I think both of us are in huge favor. Um, so we had a question that just basically went, you know, where does one start with a beginner dog in agility? And we're not 100% sure what this question is referring to, so we're just going to run with our interpretation of it, which is basically we're kind of thinking. If it's like fitness related, like you're you're starting a dog in agility, but you want to address their fitness and conditioning, for me, it's teaching them the fit form building blocks. So just like you have an agility foundation, you would have a fitness um a fitness foundation as well. And those are things I, most people would think of them as body awareness. So targeting different parts of the body, um, but also it's movement patterns. So looking at how they get into a sit, how they get into a down, um, how they move backwards, how they move sideways, all these kind of different movements and making sure um, they're doing it appropriately for fitness and engaging the um, correct pattern um, before you turn it into a repetitive exercise. And I would say, you know, if the dog's not equipment trained yet, jumping gymnastics is a really, if the dog's done growing, right. jumping gymnastics is a great way to teach jumping. We've had plenty of dogs who've never done a jump in their life take jumping yeah. gymnastics and, it's and become really good jumpers. Fun. I love it's those It's my favorite. Yeah. Don't you love it? Yeah. We had... um 
this great Rottweiler last time. Yeah. Never jumped in his life. Never jumped in his life. And he did so great. Shout out to Axel. He did so good. Um, Yeah. And I will say, just to relate this back to the classes, so jumping gymnastics, great for a beginner. Um, Weaving wonders not. I definitely don't go into how to teach weaving. Yeah, weaving wizards is for dogs that know how to weave. Yes, we do. Because I'm not involved in that class. This is not a teaching weave poles class. This is a conditioning of fitness for better weaving class. So we do do exercise that use the weave poles. So it is good for them. Like jumping gymnastics. Yes. So it is good for them to already know how to weave. Now, could you do every other exercise except for the weaving ones? Definitely. But it's just don't go into it expecting to learn how to teach your dog how to weave. Right. Plenty of other programs, honestly, out there for that. Um, We... Really already kind of answered that one. I think we'll skip that. All right. So um, it was just basically about at-home exercises with minimal equipment. Yeah. Both classes will provide you a lot of that stuff because that's where Leslie's coming from. I'm a minimalist when it comes to it. I I will say I have all the equipment. And once you sit in Seattle traffic for an hour and a half, (laughs) there is not a person in the world that wants to haul out a bunch of equipment. Yeah. And I mean, it's just not a thing. I will say... um, you know, you get addicted and then you buy all the equipment and like something new, it's fun and shiny. new and shiny comes yeah. out and you're like, oh, I have to have it. Honestly, most of the equipment just gathers dust. Truly. <laughs> most of it's obsolete. Most, we, I use the fit bones. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. And very little. Anything else. Of much else. If I'm using a peanut, that's like the most setup yeah. I'm going to do because you need to stabilize it. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> um, I think we just answered this question too. What is one piece of equipment that you would recommend? Yep. The fit bone. I like I, the fit pause fit bone. I is a great always versatile... answered that with two fit bones for my size dog. Um, you know, I definitely think there's some other things out there for smaller dogs. I really like the um, Flexiness Gangworks Twin Disc, um, and they have a few other things that are more geared towards smaller dogs. And you guys, we um, can share some of these links on the Cog Dog Radio Facebook page, yeah. by the way, of these uh, pieces of equipment we're talking about. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I don't think you need to have a lot. It's not like one piece of equipment does something special that none of the others do. And so you have to have all of them. I think it's just about, you know, if you have more, you can be more creative and, and do different stuff. And, and they all have little quirks to them of, of how they work. You know, a donut, um, because of the shape is, is 360 degrees of instability versus a peanut is more, you know, just side to side. Um, so, um, there are little nuances to each piece. Is there a certain age of dog that should, basically, should you wait until the dog's a certain age before you start agility conditioning? I mean, it really depends how you define conditioning because I start Watson body went on a awareness. Walk today. <laughs> well, but not like that. But like I start like if we're specifically talking about like the strength and stuff, the instability equipment. You know, I start body awareness right away. I think that's really important. Um, and again, like I said, I'm not going to put them on equipment until I feel comfortable that they can. They are aware of their body and know how to move their body. Um, so. 
I, I mean, technically, if you get really nitpicky, I start right away. You know, just teaching them a teaching proper the sit. Blocks, like, right? that's one of the building blocks. When do I actually turn it more into an exercise? Definitely as they're more grown, as they're more mature. You know, we focus on, I think, the growth plates being closed because we don't really have any other really firm black and white way to, like, say when they're done growing. Right. Um, I think, you know, just like with people, um, there is something to be said of teaching stuff when they're younger, but really monitoring them. I mean, you know, I always get the argument of, of when I say like, oh, we'll wait till their growth plates are closed. You know, all these athletics that kids are doing, you know, I as a swimmer started when I was five years old. Right. Um, and basically, you know, I wasn't done growing till I was 18. And I was doing very intensive training during that time. Um, so, you know, is it like, if you do exercise, is it awful, and you're gonna break your dog? No, but you do need to be smart about it. Like you shouldn't be asking your six month old puppy to do you know, 20 jumps in a row or any jumps at all necessarily. I think there's other things you can focus on before you get to that um, part. And our general rule of thumb, at least for jumping gymnastics, is that the dog should be done growing before they come in. And whether or not how you decide if they're done growing is kind of up to you. Like Leslie said, the only black and white thing that we have available to us is checking closure of growth plates but that's not a perfect science um so we leave it up to you and your vet you decide the dog is done growing they're ready to engage in jumping gymnastics um and then because the dogs need to be weave pole trained and weaving wizards i would say they're full grown and then some for that how often, and I think we touched on this a few times as well, but how often should you exercise or condition your dog with a busy work schedule? Yeah, so it doesn't really change the previous talk about like fitting it in and looking at your your, your year-long schedule and like you probably would do it more often when you're not heavily competing. Yep. Um, I have a busy schedule. I don't – I can – Exercise conditioning plan, like a workout, I mean, if it takes 15 minutes, I think that's a really long time. Um, Yeah, and that's, again, focusing on the setup being easy. Yeah. Um, For me, I'd say generally um, the average time for a workout is about 10 minutes, and that really does include the warm-up and the full like workout um and so then it should be quick yeah you you know and i'm gonna say part of your dog's daily caloric intake too it can be for their dinner yeah um i think which our dogs are asking us for obviously you know going doing the cardio part is going to be more time intensive it absolutely is um but again it's Figure out what you need to do during what times of year and figure out how to make it work. Um, last question, how often or how many reps should a dog do of the weave poles? And I think this, hopefully you're going to talk about some of this in Weaving Wizards. Yeah, so there's not, again, it's not like there's this magic number. Um, obvi- like for me, there's a difference between training 
and when they understand it. So obviously you're probably going to do more reps when you're training the behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, I think you should be smart. Be smart about those reps. Right. So like what is the general – I mean – if they get it correct, it's not like you need to do it. You do so not many need to do it again. Like I feel like it was Every like once time they get you do it, it right, move on, move on. Absolutely. Every time you do it, you should be challenging something. Yeah, and that could just mean very, very minor things. They should also be getting it right. Almost every time, because if they're not, you're wasting the reps. So think of it: this right. is an errorless learning. Um, mindset that I'm coming at this from, which we talk about in Jumping Gymnastics, which is if every incorrect set or entry that your dog does was a wasted repetition. Yeah. You want successful repetitions. That's what builds your history of reinforcement. Yeah. so So every wasted rep, every incorrect rep, is a wasted rep, and, and you think shouldn't of it be this repeating way. that because you then you absolutely not because it's just, just wasted reps, right? It's right? wasted reps, but then you're also building you're building the some wrong kind of motor history. movement, absolutely. Right. And um, they don't need to be getting it wrong to know how to do it right, right? And think of it this way: I heard somebody say this at some point. I don't. It was just a friend of mine in agility. Um, dogs have a finite number of weave poles in their body in their life so it actually comes from so jumping and it, it was yeah it was brought up actually in my the bad dog agility podcast and okay we kind of talked about it and and like um you know is that true and and i think you know kind of talks about how like what i said was i don't think there's like a specific i don't think there's a number. number that's not what i mean right it's not like it's you only have 100 right. jumps no, it's so, just you know count them and no. their body can only do right. so much in their lifetime right so don't waste it yeah don't so, waste it on failed repetitions right so for me like you know that's really important when you're training it but once the dog understands how to weave you really shouldn't be spending a lot of time just doing weave repetitions um, you know, for me, I'm obviously yeah. going to like practice courses and there's going to be weave pulls in those courses. And, and so it's going to happen yeah. then. Or maybe but I've got I'm, a weave drill that's working on a right. specific So skill. if I'm specifically doing a weave drill, which we do in, in weaving wizards, um, you'll notice I don't ever do the full set of weaves. My, You're either working the entry yeah, it, like, biggest, or the exit or yeah, whatever. My right now, um, the one weave drill that has the most poles is four poles. Um, yeah. because what I'm specifically trying to focus on is that collection into the poles and building strength for that. So yes, there is something um to say about like using weave entries as an exercise and so you know you may want to do that more throughout the dog's career but I definitely don't think if that's what you're working on you don't need to do all 12 pulls over and over and over again right all right so with that question we're going to wrap it up and just talk about where you can register for these classes if you'd yep. like to. Um, registration for Jumping Gymnastics opens Saturday, the, the 22nd, 22nd. The September 22nd. And I don't think I we also have a plug. yet, do we? I don't know what the time is, but you're going to register at fenzydogsportsacademy.com. Just click schedule. It's under School of Agility. 
click that, go there. I will also post a link on Cogdog Radio. And I'm going to plug my other class that I'm running, which is Hidden Potential. Um, um, 11.30 a.m. Excellent. And is that Pacific? Yes. 1130 so 11.30 a.m. Pacific on Saturday, the 22nd, is specifically when Jumping Gymnastics opens. Gold spots fill fast. So if you want a working spot, be ready at 1130 to get in there. Make sure you already have an account because if you have to build your account, you may not have enough time. Um, so get in there and register for Jumping Gymnastics. And then Hidden Potential is my other course that's running that term. I hope you'll check that out too. That's for dogs that kind of check out, stress down, um, maybe don't want to play sometimes. <laughs> it's basically the opposite of Worked Up. It's a really fun course. I really enjoy it. Um, and then Leslie, talk about Weaving Wizards and where they can register for that. It's open now, correct? Yes. So Weaving Wizards is open for registration now, and I believe it stays open for a week after the class officially starts. Um, class officially starts on the 24th, so I believe that's next Monday. That's Monday. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's an eight-week class, but there's two weeks of catch-up built in, so it's still only six weeks of material. Um, it is um, on the Camthor Canine um, online classroom. So just so you not know, Camthor is Welsh. So it is spelled C-A-M-D-D-W-R. So it's camthorcanine.co.uk. And we will also put that link on the yes. Cogdog Radio Facebook page. Um, and that is our friend Ann Harms School yes. in Wales. Um, and it's, you know, it's just another platform for Leslie's it's, fitness training. Yeah, it's a really good platform. It's It's similar to probably what you're used to. Um, there are gold spots, which are working spots, um, that you post video and then there's, um, auditing spots, which is, you know, like your bronze spots. Um, although I do believe I think even it's a silver spot, it's more like a silver spot. Right. Think. Cause I think even with the auditing, you can ask general questions in the forums. You just can't post video. Right. So it's got, it's, more like it's got kind of two levels. If you're familiar with Fenzi, which has gold, silver, bronze, Camthor, as well as most schools I think I'm familiar with have just gold and silver type of levels. Yeah. So we'll post all of those links on Cogdog Radio um, as comments to this. And Leslie, where can people find you if they're interested in more of what you do? Um, so I have a website. Um, the total canine.net and canine is spelled out. Um, but you can also find me on Facebook under the total canine. Um, and that's the best place to get information and contact me with any questions. All right. Thanks, Leslie, for this interview. Thanks, you guys, for all of your questions. And I hope that you'll engage in a conversation about this over on the Facebook, uh, the Cogdog Radio Facebook page. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Cogdog Radio. If you have questions or suggestions, shoot them over to cogdogradio at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to like the Cogdog Radio Facebook page, and until next time, happy training!